Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Extraordinary People. Today, I am delighted to have Professor Benjamin Marshall with me. Uh, Ben Marshall's plays have earned recognition from HBO New Writers Workshop, New York's Theater for a New City, Chicago's public radio station, WBEZ, and in play festivals from Alaska to Australia. Recently, Plainfield audiences have seen his play, Five Husbands and Incident, at Willow Creek. His awards include five playwriting fellowships from New Jersey Council on the Arts, fellowships from the Geraldine R. Dodge Foundation, VCCA, NEH, and the Robert Chesley Victor Bumbleau Foundation. Recently, he received the Bauer Bosher Award and the Stanley Drama Award for Incidents at Willow Creek. So welcome today, Ben. Oh, thank you, Shirley. How are uh, you? I'm good. Um, this yes. is really um, a treat for me because um, even though we work, uh, we both work together at Middlesex County College, and we've probably known each other for over 20 years now. Oh, wow. We, yeah. yeah, and we don't run into each other very often, having different schedules, and I've always really wanted to sit down and have a conversation with you um, because the little I know about you, um, I consider you a true Renaissance man. Um, You are not only a wonderful playwright, a a wonderful teacher, um, but also you have talent in um, other many different areas and quite a unique background. So um, I'm wondering if we can start off with um, talking a little bit about your background and um, your education and some of your um, teaching experiences. Sure. Um, <laughs> where do you want to start? I was born in Newark, New Jersey, believe it or not. Ah. Um, yeah. And raised in East Orange. Um, basically, you know, two cities are next to each other. Um, public school education, which, um, I didn't realize. Well, I mean, I enjoyed it very much, but I didn't realize how, um, uh, unique it was at the time. I'm, um, I mean, like we had, uh, well, I started playing piano when I was five years old and we had at grammar school at Nassau school, we had music classes once a week. And I just thought everybody had music classes once a week, but, um, uh, I later found out that it was, that wasn't consistent in a lot of public schools. Um, so right away from right from the beginning, there was always an interest in the arts. Um, we had a painting teacher, an art teacher who came once a month or once every two weeks, I believe. Um, we had, we always had um, put on um, 
performances, um, not just at holiday time, but there was um, something in the spring, something in the fall. Um, and this was just an ordinary high, I mean, really just an ordinary grammar school. Um, and of course, there were all the um, usual subjects. Um, I went to, believe it or not, I went to Kane University. Um, I started out as a painting major, a fine arts major. Wow. I had a, yeah. I did not know that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I eventually ended up with a um, minor in fine arts, but I um, became, well, I shifted into English, um, English literature, and the department was, the speech and theater department was growing at the time I was there. So I actually became the, I ended up with a double major, English literature, um, you know, English literature and composition and um, speech and theater. I was the first graduate with the speech and theater on his transcript. That's so. Um, Yeah. Um, If you ever go to Kane or if anyone ever, any of your listeners ever go to Kane, they'll see um, a couple of small theaters named Murphy, one's named Murphy Dunn and, the other one's Zella Fry, and I worked for Zella Fry um, in my last two, last two or three years there. Um, she taught a course called Creative Dramatics, Creative, Creative Drama, and Children's Theater. And she wanted a pianist. She wanted someone to do not just ambient music, but someone to create music for performances and for the classroom. And uh, um, I had a work study job doing that, hmm. and, um, and then the other theater professors, Murphy and Dunn, um, were my two two of my close advisors and instructors. Wow! It's you know, so it's like yeah, I know. So it's <laughs> like interesting. To, if well, I've gone to Kane, I've visited Kane a couple of times um, recently, and it's interesting to see these names, you know. Memorials like that, especially in theaters. Yes. Anyway, went to, after that, I went to Hunter briefly, Hunter College. Um, it was Hunter College then in New York. Sure. Briefly for playwriting. And then I had to take a break. Um, family stuff and financial stuff, basically. And about after a year, I went to the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And, um, for an MFA in creative writing and poetry. Um, It was a twist, but I thought, I don't know this avenue. I don't know this realm. So let me understand. Let me journey there. And I felt, um, you know, I had had the time and the inclination and I guess the talent. Um, So University of Massachusetts Amherst, I was there for about three years. And then I, I joke now, um, and people say, yes, yes, of course. But, I mean, can you imagine someone now coming out with a degrees in English, speech and theater, painting, and creative writing? Get a job. Um, can you think, get a job, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. Uh. Um, <laughs> you got to get a job. Were your parents supportive of that? Um. Well, as much as I could be, I was mm-hmm. basically doing it myself. So, right. Yeah. Um, and I was 
fortunate enough, very, very fortunate. Um, as an undergraduate, I had a state scholarship. I don't know if Jersey still does that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so thank you, New Jersey taxpayers. They paid for my education, my undergraduate education. Um, and at UMass, I had a teaching fellowship. So that took care of tuition. Um and a little bit of housing, too. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but getting a job. Okay, here's the other big <laughs> twist. You ready for this? Sure. Um, I got job teaching English in foreign countries in the Middle East. That's what I remember. Uh, that's, that's why yeah. I wanted to sit down and talk with you some more about this. So how was that? Yeah. How did that go? That, it was... <laughs> Putting it mildly, it was an experience, mm. but um, it was lovely experiences. Some of them were absolutely lovely experiences. Um, I a total of five years, but uh, the first year, okay, brace yourselves, guys. Um, the first year I taught in uh, Libya, and mm. yeah, under Colonel Gaddafi. Um, My goodness. Yeah, and then for two years after that. Um, I taught in Jordan, which was a very lovely experience. I um, And some of the people with whom I taught, um, I still am in contact with. We're all over the globe. Um, hmm. And thank God for Facebook. This is one of the best things about Facebook right now, um, um, communicating with the people that I worked with. I'm curious, um, the population yeah. at the school, were these um, people of wealth who went to these schools or were, were most people um, continuing with their education in that way? These were university students. They were traditional university students. They were Arab students. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in Jordan, they were Jordanian and Palestinian. Um, in Libyan, they were mostly Libyan, but a few Egyptians um, and a few other Arab, Tunisians, um, a couple of um, Algerians. And from Libya and Jordan, I then went to Kuwait, and most of my students were Kuwaiti, but also, also other Gulf students um, mm-hmm. from the Persian Gulf. So I had a Qatari student. I had a few students from the Emirates. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what years, but um, if you say Middle East now, people usually think of either Israel or Dubai. And this was before. Like, this was yeah. before Dubai was Dubai. Sure. Mm-hmm. Got it. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. All right. A little different. A little different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Kuwait University and um, was one of the larger universities and one, one of the better known universities in the area. Um, I worked at the School of Medicine and Allied Health teaching English. And one of the professors there was a kidney specialist, a Pakistani kidney specialist. I met him once briefly, shook his hand. Um, because he um, was a Nobel Prize winner in medicine. I do not remember his name. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
let me just say that the language of all at the these universities, the language of instruction was in English. And all the students had had English from grade three all the way through high school. And once they uh, decide to attend university, they have to they have to be tested and placed. And their systems are quite different so that, um, yes, you can say you want to be a doctor, but you have to test first to get into the medical program. Um, so when I was t- teaching at this in Kuwait University, we had only the, I was teaching the top um, students because they were the ones, they would not let anybody um, be, go into medicine. And again, they had a, they had to have very strong English skills in order to um, understand lectures. Also, at that time, all of the technical um, and medical textbooks were in English. Oh, is that so? So you really needed yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the students really needed their English. They really needed to have very strong English skills. Um, at the end of, I mean, for at Kuwait, they had a four, you know, we teach comp one, comp two, basically. Um, it's, it's a one-year program, you know, two semesters. But they, they had to have four years, four semesters of English. And at the end of their fourth semester, the student has to give a what the British call a viva or a viva. Um, they had to present a research paper. Um, they had to write the research paper. They had to, and then had to um, present it and they were judged by three people, um, one of them being the faculty, English faculty, but they're also by um, a medical, um, two people from the medical department, so that they would, um, they would understand, you know, see if the um, technical aspects were correct. Hmm. Wow. So it was a very, very intensive program for the students. How many years were you uh, doing that? Or how long were for you total- doing that? I was two years in Kuwait, two years in Jordan, and one year in Libya, so a total of five years. Mm. And I wasn't one of the, okay, here comes the perks. <laughs> I, one of the things is that um, I was, we often got airline tickets back home. Mm-hmm. So every summer, you know, we, um, I would go back home, go back to the States. And... Um, at the time, it was quite lucrative, um, you know, much better. It was comparable to starting first year, you know, teaching first year at a university here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, um, it's it's a wonderful resume for you. Um, besides yes. that, I always like to know, you know, when one has the un- these um, extraordinary experiences, um, what was the lesson for you? What was the what did you come away with after that experience? Um, a lot of things. Um, I you know, one of the first things I have to say is that not to sweat the small stuff. Um, I don't remember. Yeah, I know. Um, um, I do get, you know, perturbed about, you know, we, we, as English professors, we sometimes get, you know, go crazy if we misplace commas or something like that. But, um, um, and that still happens. But, um, 
in terms of anything in terms of the weather or in terms of, um, you know, I don't know, day-to-day stuff. I try not to get too perturbed about things like that. Um, you know, um, I try to be a little more optimistic on, on how outcomes would happen. Um, I remember when I was leaving each one of the positions, there's a, a, a checkout pro, um, process. You Basically, you have to... Um, show that you don't own any, any um, utility bills or something like that. And the first time it was going through it in Libya was very, very difficult and stressful and um, angst-inducing. And the last time I did it at Kuwait, I kept thinking, okay, I measured myself. What can I do today? What can be put off tomorrow? You know, this is just mechanical, bureaucratic stuff. I don't have to do every single, I don't have to collect every single signature. This is what you have to do. You have to go to different um, utilities and things like that to get signatures to say that you don't own anything. I, I can't get to the electricity, electric department today. I can get to it tomorrow or next week. I know I can do that. I can do one thing today or two things today, but not everything today. And I've realized that was a very valuable lesson. That's just a very simple lesson. The other thing is about humanity. I mean, students are students. There were some cultural differences. Um, yes, the they did have a greater um, respect for um, professors and teachers. I have to. I do miss that. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, students are students. You know. Can I turn the paper and read? Um, <laughs> how many points we take off? If, you know, sure, kind of thing. sure. Everybody does that. Um, you know. Yeah, it just yeah, puts the I, you know to those those lessons are really wonderful lessons because you know we do need in our daily lives to put things in perspective, and at the end yes. of the day. You know, we are there. There's more that more similarities, more things that bind us rather than differences. Right, right. So I was always rather a quiet person. I'm not necessarily a talker. Um, And one of the other things that um, one of the other lessons I think is that I'm far more comfortable talking to a stranger. Um, because at that time I really did have to talk to strangers. Um, and, um, sometimes, you know, if you're dealing with a foreign language, you know, sometimes you, you know, anyone, you know, if you the first couple of times you're dealing with a foreign language, you feel likely to feel self-conscious. And, um, I stopped getting, you know, self-conscious about, you know, shifting to a different language. Um, and, I remember just, you know, this is an incident, small things. I just remember sometimes being in a supermarket, in a market, you know, the souk. Um, you know, the souk was, you know, the, the old city souks were, were wonderful. You just, you know, you'd see something you like and you bargain. And I remember I have bargaining um, sessions with someone and, you know, switching from English to Arabic to French. I did it, okay. One time, when I lived in Jordan, um, 
I lived in the north of Jordan, um, in Erbid. There's a university, the university was Yarmouk University. And um, things were a little more stable, so we would actually, uh, my friends and I would sometimes go to Damascus in Syria for the weekend. Uh, and um, going to the old souk there the, with the old market was very much a traditional market. And um, what I was about to say is that, you know, I remember some um, marketing, some bargaining sessions where I see a carpet I like and I'd sit and um, argue with the proprietor and we'd switch from English. Sometimes we couldn't find the right word in English or I didn't understand or he didn't understand. And I'd pull something out in Arabic and he or he respond in Arabic, or then we switch to French. And sometimes we have conversations where, you know, whatever word from whatever language we would use, that's what we would use, you know? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So you come back to the States, and um, how, you know, you, you have so many different fields that you could have gone into. Um uh, you you continued with your teaching. Uh, talk about the a little bit about that bridge that you had to cross um, with in that area, and also um, how did you channel all your interests into really um, becoming the playwright that you are today? That's a good question. Since I loved writing creatively, and because I had a background in speech and theater. Um, I started writing um, a few plays even while I was in the Middle East. Um, and they were just, you know, mostly short scenes. Um, and I had a couple of um, friends that would read things aloud. Um, once I got back, I started writing short plays and um, had a couple of them, um, early ones produced um, in smaller theaters, say in Philadelphia and in New York City. And yeah, basically, um, I liked directing, but I, and I, as I worked as a musical director sometimes, and as a, um, um, I was finding I was enjoying more the process of creation as opposed to the process of recreation, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Um, and um, I think it's Tony Morrison who says, write the book that you want to read. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's like, you know, write the play that you want to see. Mm -hmm. um, was it so, difficult? Was it, was it difficult? Because I know, you know, you, there you can have a lot of talent, but for me, it's always been uh, an issue. How do I get myself out there? How do I get my work um, on the page? Or in your case, how do you get that play produced? Um, right. Was it um, difficult? Yes. <laughs> and it's still difficult. I mean, marketing is still difficult and it's still not one of my strong suits. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you do have to be a good self-promoter and marketer. So earlier on, in some ways earlier on, it was easier. In some ways, um, I, you know, have to say this, I, 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 um, Philadelphia was a lot easier to get it, you know, to get around in, in, than New York. 
um, New York City, there's so much competition. And in Philly, Mm -hmm. not to say that there aren't talented people, but there were more venues that were initially open. So you didn't have to um, um, go through so many hoops. And if, you know, I met someone on, they're not, I met someone on the train once. Um, we still keep in contact. And um, he told me, oh, there's this theater. We, we started talking about theater and the fact that he was a playwright and he focused on children's theater. And he told me about different theaters in, in Philadelphia. And, um, uh, you know, that kind of casual contact led me to certain things um, in certain venues in theater in um, Philadelphia. So Ed Shockley is his name, and I hope he's listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you really need that because, you know, you you don't want to shine that light inside of a desk uh, drawer, right. you know, right. and uh, right. we need that. And that is always a difficult part of the process. Um, tell us a little bit, because not everybody is familiar um, with uh, your plays. So tell us a little bit about a couple of your plays that have received these uh, wonderful accolades. And also, I know, um, as a writer, um, generally my work has a message for me. It's the importance of family. Um, mm-hmm. and I'd like to know what message you have in, in your work. So two things, wow. the plays and the message. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll start with three if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> One of my very, very early ones is a play called Boombox. And, um, back when, you know, people actually did have boom boxes, believe it or not. And it's I remember. two young girls, um, uh, about 12 or 14. And one is, one is pregnant. One, they're, actually, they're both pregnant. I'm going to give one, give out the story, not the whole story, but, um, and she has, she owns a boom box and she's going to thinking of hawking it in order to get a, they're living in the inner city of more or less Newark um, back in the days when Newark was a lot more dangerous. And one has a boom box and she's pregnant and she's thinking of t- hawking the, uh, pawning the boom box in order to get money to get a bus ticket to go back home down south. And the other one is thinking of stealing it in order to get money for an abortion. Mm. Yeah. Interesting premise, um, yeah. Interesting premise. Um, and that was produced a couple of times, um, and it's a one-act play. And then um, I'll do the one recent one that has been getting a lot of awards. It's called Incident at Willow Creek. Yes. And it's a full-length play, about 90 minutes long. Um, and I don't usually do this, but it is about teacher at a community college. How would you know about that? Yeah, what would I know about that? <laughs> but confronting, dealing with a student who is interested in guns and very much interested in guns and does have a lot of gun connections. And um, it's in the background 
of an incident, not at the school, initially at the school, but at another place, a mall far away from the school, where an innocent, innocent African-American man was shut down, shot and killed by the police. Um, I know it's a very violent pre- premise, and I wrote it about, oh, 2016. Um, and it was dealing with, you know, the current issues of the, you know, mass shootings that we've had. Um, the professor, now, people don't understand this, but I changed the gender. She's a African-American professor. Um, so I wanted a little bit of um, emotional distance in writing this. You know, this isn't what happened to me, but um, um, it's the idea of what is safe and what is not. How much do you interfere and what? how do you not interfere? How do you, you know, when is a news story just a news story in some other place and when does it affect you personally? Mm-hmm. And then um, a little bit of um, a little bit of self-promotion. Um, in a few weeks, I'm going to go to a theater in Texas, um, in Houston, and they are doing going to do a, a reading of a play that I've had for a while, but um, they I took it out of the drawer and brought it to them and. They seem to like it. Um, it's a play based on the life of Phyllis Wheatley. Um, Tell us who she is. Yeah, she was the first, I'll do the official stuff. She was the first American to ever publish a book of poetry, but she was also a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so as a slave, she wrote an entire book of poetry, managed to get it published. Um, and this was all around the time of the American Revolution. It's a turn for you, isn't it? Because from what I've been hearing, you you take on more timely subjects. Yeah, well, this is very interesting because um, in a way it is somewhat, there are resonances to the current issue. Um, I was reading about her life, and this is a long time ago, but I was reading about her life um, and there's one thing that actually happened to her um, in the effort to get her poetry produced. Her her master, for lack of a better word, um, arranged to have some sort of examination because at the time they did think that African Americans or much less an enslaved woman would be capable of writing poetry. So her Mr. Wheatley managed to get a group of prominent men to examine her to see if she had the intellect, the capability of um, being a poet. Hmm. And I, when I was reading that, I said, that's a great dramatic scene. Yeah. <laughs> that is really a great dramatic scene. Never been done before um, as far as I know. Nothing like right, that. Right, because there's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a, a there's, um, there's, um, you know, um, 
it's historical. I mean, there, there are references to it happening. It certainly did happen, but there's no record of what was actually discussed. So she was in a room with, the actual number was 27 men, but some of them were quite prominent. Um, the governor of, the royal governor of Massachusetts at the time, John Hancock, that John Hancock was one wow. of them. Um, so, and there's no record, I mean, Yes, it happened. Yes, they approved of her. Yes, they, they thought she was wonderful and talented. But what they actually discussed, no one seems to know. And I thought, that is just right for the stage. Mm. You know, that is just perfect. Yeah. That's a play I'd like to see, I'll tell you. Yeah. So what was bubbling in my mind was not only the sense of poetry, the actual historical things, but the sense of agency, the sense of, um, I guess, the theme of um, freedom versus enslavement. You know, this is also happening at the same, coincidentally, at the same time as the American Revolution. Um, hmm. Or just before, just around the same time. Um, so, what is the nature of liberty? Um, what is the nature of freedom? What is the nature, um, nature of agency? Um, there's, in my play, I use, or I, I focus a lot on the women of the play uh, that were involved around Phyllis. Um, uh, Mrs. Wheatley and um, uh, the daughter, Mary, um, and the fact that, you know, how, who was actually more free? Um, and, or, you know, hmm. the sense of, you know, the, yeah, because it's yeah. like... Interesting dichotomy, <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. Wow. Um, uh, and the very end of the play, um, Phyllis confronts, of all people, because this actually happened, she meets George Washington, um, I'm not going to tell you what they said, but or what they talk about. But, um, but I just felt, you know, this is one little aspect that you know needs to be explored. Um, so when I say think about, um, I know it's historical, and I know it's said in the far past, but I found these resonances about the place of woman. You know, how did you come upon this idea? I was just reading, you know, I teach African-American literature. I was reading about Phyllis <laughs> ah, in the background. I said, okay, okay my God. I said, then I started reading some more and started reading some more and started reading some more and some more and some more. And, um, we teachers have and to, con- my- we have to be students. We always have to be students oh, yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was very, and I was, the timing was very, very good um, because I started thinking of it a long time ago. Um, and then I put that idea for away and I came back to it a good many years later, like five years later or seven years later or something like that. And by that time, there were a couple of more biographies written about her and there were a couple of poems that were, um, that were previously not published. And I looked at them and um, although Wheatley has a reputation of being a little more um, removed or middle, little 
lofty. Some of the poems that were recently attributed to her are far more political. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was exploring those themes as well, you know, you know, here's a political voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Here's a political voice, but then that voice is subsumed in some ways for some reason. Um, It's, 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 Unfortunate that some of the letters that she wrote um, were lost, but people who wrote in return to her are still collected. So hmm. I looked at some of those things as well. Wow. Um, so coming back to my question, what's the message um, in your place? Because they're, they're different. I have my stock answer of love gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think maybe it's more the not just romantic love or um, family love, but I also think in terms of um, affiliations and um, um, other kinds of love, love of country, the love of one's fellow human being. Yes. That's um, what I would say it is. I was just thinking yeah. about that. It's it's all about love of humanity, love of each other, mm. and and that's what I see coming through. Um, as a playwright, um, who whom do you admire? Oh my God! Um, <laughs> how long is this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, just give us a couple of names. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh, well, of course, August Wilson. Um, people know, I mean, I think you know, and everyone knows, I've had a couple of workshops with him, um, writing workshops with him. I still like, um, even though he's not a playwright per se, he's a you know, music and lyricist, Stephen Sondheim, um, because of the craft. Um, uh, boy, you, you, I mean, He's got those two books of lyrics, Finishing the Hat, and I can't remember the other one. Um, But uh, the way he approached um, writing lyrics was so strong. It's as strong as um, and as decent as any um, really good poet, um, if not better. Um, Contemporary, uh, Lynn Nottage, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with her work. She wrote Sweat, um, Intimate Apparel, mm-hmm. um, Ruined. Um, she's twice won the Pulitzer Prize for um, drama. Hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Um, this actually is a good lead into my uh, last question, which is the here and now. It's about the craft of playwriting, which I know it, it would be very difficult for me to write a play um, and, and, and writing, writing short stories, writing books. Those are the things that um, come easily for me. Um, so um, what is the, what is the special thing about um, writing that play? Like, what is, if you could just give me in a few words, like, what goes into that, into writing that play? Because it is so different from other forms of creative writing. And also, I know you've 
you teaching um, a couple of courses in playwriting. Um, right. How do you um, get the students, um, not only teach them the craft, but that, but then get them excited? Do you see any, do you see any, um, hope for our uh, for our future on uh, you know having uh, new playwrights coming out with um, this because it's not something that you know the everyday student wants to pursue. So, what's right. your thoughts on that? Um, let's see. First, let's start with the craft, and then start with the teaching, and then end with the teaching of that. Um, and the craft, um, first thing is like learning how to listen. Um, and it's uh, listening to how people talk and not just what they say, but how they're saying it. Um, one of the most interesting accidental playwriting books. And I say accidental playwriting book because I've ever encountered, um, because it's not a playwriting book at all. It's a book about linguistics. Um, Deborah Tannen, um, I'm, you know, you just don't understand. Um, she has a couple of books. Um, and I remember how she said, men talk this way and women talk this way. Um, and, and I said, and it's interesting. And then she said, you know, it's interesting that if you give men a task, like they're doing something like working in a car, that's when one will open up and say something. One is likely, you know, one of the men will open up and likely to say something that's revealing. And I thought, oh my God, that's a perfect playwriting tool. That's a perfect playwriting tool. That is a perfect, you know, thing. Have work, have people work on a task, and see, or some sort of, you know, little job, and then that, seeing what develops, see what comes out of that, seeing what follows up. And once that was put in front of me, I started looking at different plays and even movies, um, and I noticed that is that situation comes up quite a bit. Um, so I've used that in my classes. You know, here, here's your, here's your assignment. Write a scene. Don't go anywhere. It's one scene, one set, one time, two people. They have to do a task. What task? You come up with the task and then see what develops. And more or less people do write something that's very, very interesting. Um, uh, so I have people, sometimes I will give a prompt, like the first line, um, I've, um, other playwriting friends who, you know, let me borrow lessons. And one of the lessons was a, uh, uh, task assignments was a writing a play in one minute, uh, writing a one minute play and that, um, on one side of one paper and they, you put the name of the character in the the top and here's the first line. Hey, did you see or hey, did you hear? And let it go from there. Um, you've, yeah. Exciting. Um, yeah. 
any good stuff out there? How are they doing? Yes, I think so. Um, there's quite a few right now. They're, they're you know not well known, but there are quite a few um, ten minute play festivals and short play festivals. And um, I've actually sent a couple of students um, on to um, NYU Dramatic Writing School. Um, uh, you know, the, go to NYU for, for um, not just for theater, but to playwriting. Um, uh, because they're, they're, what they wrote in um, my class was used as a portfolio for their entrance into NYU. Um, yeah. Um, That's a great thing. Very proud. Yeah, you should a be. Lo- a lot of students right now are a little more interested, are more interested in film. Um, which uses some of the same techniques as playwriting, but I, of course, have to adjust some things. Um, you know, yes, you can go to different places at the same, you know, within the same shot or within the same scene. That's fine. Um, and we focus so much not on how what they say, but the dialogue's important. But we learn how to scale back and try to be more visual. Um, uh, I had a wonderful, um, heard a wonderful lecture, lecture by, um, the playwright and screenwriter, um, Don, um, Wright. He wrote, um, I brought up his name twice. He wrote, I am my own wife. And he wrote, wrote the other play about, um, the Marquis de Sade. And I can't think of the name. Um, but he was relating the story of how he, um, when that play, I wish I could remember the name. I should have prepared. <laughs> okay. um, when that play was went from the stage to the screen, and I hope someone can get in. Um, he wrote the screenplay, and it was with Kate Winslet and Jeffrey Rush. You know, said in the seventeen mm. hundreds. Um, and um, before one scene. Kate Winslet went up to him and she said, I would never criticize your writing, but with this speech, and she said, I can say everything that this speech says with my eyes. Hmm. And he went, you're right. So they cut the speech and they filmed it with just her reacting to what was being said to her. Hmm. Um, and he said that was a great, very good lesson about what is necessary for stage and what is necessary for a screen. Wow. Um, Interesting. And I have to try to, you know, yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things I, I, I try to remember. You know, it's like, um, so in the playwriting class here at Middlesex, I use two books, one that concentrates on playwriting and the other one that's concentrating on screenwriting. Um, screenwriting is a lot more architectural. You do have to have... Um, they do look at page count. They do look at um, um, how much space there is on the page, you know, how much description there is, how much dialogue there is. Um, so my son tells me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. different ball game then, really. So very it interesting. It really is. Yeah, hmm. it really is. And, you know, it's like a very, I mean... Gone are the days when they, you know, we would have one character speak 
a long time, more mm-hmm. than more than three minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, even three sentences looks a little bit packed. And in a lot of the screenwriting software, <laughs> the margins are already set up for you. So you don't, you know, yeah. so you don't write across the page. Right. You do you are contained to a little block. Yeah, you can't have um, a one-man show on the screen, <laughs> not no, on the big screen, no, though. But, no. uh, well, Ben, uh, this has really just been a fascinating discussion, and I could I could talk to you for an hour more, and I, I really come away with even more admiration for you than I had uh, before we started. Um, and I, and I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today, and I look forward uh, to seeing uh, seeing a few more of your plays um, on stage. And I hope that everybody listening uh, will go check them out as well, because um, I'm sure the experience will be um, extraordinary as you are. Oh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtel and to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Extraordinary People.